Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. There's all these, um, you know, sayings, you know, never take no for an answer. You know, you pull yourself up by the brute strap and you do that stuff. Da, 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 da. You can even do that sometime and it's not happening. But the people that are around you that care about what you're doing, they're 98.7% of the time are going to tell you what's good for you. And what's good for you personally and internally will always move you in the direction of what you want. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Great to be here. Great to know that you guys have been so supportive and so incredibly great to me and this show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And today I'm really, really happy really, really thrilled because we have Tommy Davidson here. All I'll say about Tommy is about one thing that another guest on my podcast said recently. And that was Rita Rudner. And she was talking about her daughter, who was 14 years old, who wanted to be a singer and songwriter. And she was recording her first album. And her mom, Rita, sat down with her and said, I love you and I'll do anything for you. Myself and your dad will do anything to help you make it in this business. But there's only one thing that we can't give you, adversity. Sometimes it appears that the people who have the best shot of making it are the ones who've gone through the most difficult path because they fought through the ups and downs and they figure out a way to come up on top. And Tommy Davidson is a guy who started off his life in the worst possible way you can imagine, which was being born to an addict, being abandoned in the trash, and almost dying, and then being taken in by a white family, total cross-cultural differences, and somehow he figured out a way 
to get through it all and do what he loved best, which was entertaining people, not just with music, but with comedy. And I don't know anybody who's gone through that kind of adversity. And I think what Rita Redner was alluding to is the fact that if you are somebody in this business or any business and you can overcome that kind of odds, if you can figure out a way when everything's against you to still work hard and fight through and rally around the talent that God's given you in whatever profession you're in. You can persevere. But part two of that is throughout Tommy's life, the gene that was inside of his mom crossed over to him. So if it wasn't bad enough with the adversity, when he finally got to the point where he broke through and started blowing people away, then he lost his way. And each time he relapsed, he would fight his way back and get to the place where people worked with him and they were blown away. And each time, again, he would have a setback. He would fight his way back and be able to go on stage with any comedian in the world. And there isn't anybody from Chappelle to Chris Rock to Richard Pryor that would ever say that this guy isn't one of the funniest people in the world and one of the most talented. So I think if there's anything to think about, if you can figure out a way to overcome your adversity, figure out a way to fight your way through all the setbacks. It's possible to overcome. It's possible to look adversity in the face and laugh and fight through it and use your talent and your work ethic and your relationships to take you where you need to go. And if you can do that, I can guarantee you your peers who are the best in their field will talk about you the way they talk about Tommy Davidson. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Most people who are old enough remember where they were when JFK was shot. Mm-hmm. As a black man living in a white family who were people who were activists for Martin Luther King, do you remember, even at five where you were when you found out that Martin Luther King Jr. got shot and tell me how your mom's demeanor as a person in this world changed when the hope of an entire generation mm -hmm. of black people rested on this man's shoulder and he was taken out mm -hmm. just out of nowhere. He was kind of a 
something natural happened. Like I said, we moved there when he got shot. So it was uh, maybe a day before. You know, so that was a circumstance. I didn't know anything. She told me that back. You know, later I'm I'm like I'm I'm five. But what I remember in DC when I lived in Washington DC there were a lot of black kids that we hung out with before we finally moved to the suburbs. She had befriended them, you know? That whole finding out I was black and white was an incident that just hit me to the fact that, hey, I ain't brown. I'm black even though I'm really brown, you know? But a lot of teenagers would hang out at the house and listen to music, you know? My mom was like really hip, you know? And she got along with all the black moms, you know? I didn't know what was going on as far as King goes until years later, but I do know about James Brown. (laughs) And that was my first entertainment years because I can automatically dance and sing better than anything. When did you know you could dance and sing? How do you know you have the skill for mimicking? How do you know you have the skill for dancing, singing? What happens? I didn't know. The music started coming on and I just came alive and everybody got a kick out of it. They were like, look at this little dude. Look at him. So what they would do was they would, they would uh, get ar- all get around get beers and stuff say Barbara go get your son she bring me downstairs they take a spoon put tin foil over it lift me up on the table and put on say it loud I'm black and I'm proud and I just I just say it loud I'm black and I'm proud it's a party say it loud I'm black and I'm proud. And I do this whole dance thing. I imagine they also were laughing and being entertained. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So five years old, you were doing comedy and music. Not that I knew of. And um, it was uh, Aretha Franklin. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what the means to me. R-E. It was so mad. So they put that on and I... So man, so, and I knew all the dances, the pony, the monkey, the jerk. I learned them all fast. That was my first. Now your brothers and sisters were they musically inclined? Were they funny? No. (laughs) (laughs) But they tried. They tried. They would try to dance with everybody else, you know. And there is an innate, there is an, I can say this. I can say this. White there's, people have the rhythm of a furnace. There was a, there was, <laughs> 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 there just was an innate, not natural thing that was there. That's changed now. I mean, they didn't have the thing. They didn't have the thing. And I watched music from that, that became a babysitter. That became my babysitter. And your brother and sister, were they jealous of you? No. We were the best of friends. Are you still close with them? My brother passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. He was one of the first people to contract AIDS. Late 70s. Maybe 77. 
did he know what was wrong with him? Uh, everybody was trying to find out what this was. And his level was a lot older. Michael was, if I was 15, Michael was 18, living with the guy. That was his man. Michael was really advanced, very advanced kid. Michael took his GED when he was 15 and hitchhiked around the country. I was jealous of him because he was like a genius, you know. In my room, I had G.I. Joe's. And in his room, he had model planes set up in wood frames with cotton as clouds. Several different models looking like they're flying. Like, Michael was a straight-up genius. Did he know he was dying? Uh, no, not at that time. His, his lover died. And it was years and years and years later that he actually contracted it himself. And that was the, actually the early 90s. That was actually during the In Living Color years. And I went up and took care of him. In, um, there's a place, Capitol Hill. Me, my mom, and my sister took care of him. We all took turns. So I went up, my big brother, who I looked up to so long, I ended up going, hanging out with him, going to get groceries for him, you know, taking care of him, you know? When Michael died, that really devastated us because Michael was like, like the emotional glue. Michael sent cards to us. He made sure all the birthdays were right. My mother facilitated them. You know, she'd make a pumpkin cake. You know, she'd make her fruit salad every time on Thanksgiving. She cooked all the food. So, but Michael was the guy who made sure everybody enjoyed themselves. It was fucking embarrassing to me. Because we go to a concert, Parliament Funkadelic, and I got this white boy in a top hat going crazy, you know? And he's the one that, that did this, would, would create the circus in the, back, in the backyard. He'd make the circus. He'd do the bicycle rallies. He'd scare the motherfuck out of us at Halloween. Like, he was, he was the dude. Mike was the dude. And um, it was an eye-opener because he was my big brother. And then I ended up taking care of him in Seattle. But the interesting part was he turned into an AIDS activist. And went to Congress, did the big quilt, and one of the one of the, he was one of the instrumental people that helped Congress pass this into a legal disease. He was one of the guys, gay, lesbian, that whole world. He was one of the guys that did that. So here's where the comedy comes in. So he's on his dying. He's they're they're saying this is it. You know, you better stay with him for the next day. You know, and. I had a gig in Dallas, a comedy gig. He's in hospice. He's at home with my mom and my 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 sister, and they're carrying him from the from the bathtub, wiping his butt. I couldn't do all that stuff. The whole family's there. I got to cancel the gig in Dallas because he's right at the edge. I call the promoters. I got a family emergency. It's very bad, you know. My brother's not going to make it till tomorrow. I can't make the gig. Promoter says, if you don't make the gig, we're going to go to the radio station and say you're back on drugs. We're going to make it clear. 
So my family had a meeting and I called my business manager at the time. And he said, yeah, sometimes that happens when you have a relative, there's nothing you can really do anyway, you know? But it's better to go to the show after everything you've built back, the reputation you've built back for that, than to not. So I went to the show and my brother died that day. And I did my show. And I also performed the night my mom died too. Now, when I came back, here's some beauty. When I came back, his body was still there and we had a talk before I left. My mom said, you better go and talk to him. And he said, he said, um, we said our apologies for being such jerks as kids to each other because we were like, man, we battled all the time. And we both said sorry. But what he said was, he said, he said, I want you to remember something, Tommy. He said, people are going to treat you kind of bad and you're not going to know why. And I don't think even they are. But you're coming from such a different background that that vibration that you carry is so strange. It may make people react in that way towards you. And I was like, okay, all right. And it's made sense. It's made sense. It was kind of a deep thing to say, but I think only he can make that observation because he was on his way to wherever we go. And it's helped me. So right before you're leaving, tell me the last thing you said to your brother. We both said it. We always said it since we were little kids, you know? We would ask each other the question, who's my best friend? She'd go, Tommy. Who's my best friend? And he would go, Michael. Came back, his dad was there, whom I disowned because he was never around. Didn't help my sister. Kind of favored him, you know? I don't blame him. We didn't... We hadn't spoke for years, and he was in the room with Michael's body. And I peeped my head in, and he was so devastated. And then when he came out of the room, you know, he came up to me and hugged me, and me and him went in the hallway, and we talked, and it all went away. Because we both realized that we loved the same man. You know, and me and my dad's relationship was never the same. We're like buddies. I cook food for him. He lives in Denver. I cooked food for him in my hotel one time with the little kitchens. And we watched all the football games, you know, and I go out there and visit him. And he's just as proud as can be. All of that is done. All of that is done. And Magic Johnson had just contracted it. And I called him because I knew what Michael had gone through. And I told him, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I'm here with my brother. If there's anything I can ever do for you, you let me know. And I know it's hard. And he said, thank you, man. Thank you for that call. Tell me your first inspiration to wanting to be 
in the entertainment business. I know you say you were dancing on the table at five, but when you do music and comedy, you have this thing fighting inside you. You either want to be a comedian or you want to be a musician and a singer or a rock star. Which one did you want to be early on? A soul star. It started with James Brown, but it really came around with the Jackson 5. My aunt took me to see the Jackson 5 when I was eight in Washington, D.C. First of all, I saw the Jackson 5 on uh, the Diana Ross special and on Ed Sullivan. And I was like, what the f... This was like in 69. That was... I was going to be a singer. I knew all the moves, knew all the stuff, you know. I was ready. And then when I saw him live, my life was never the same. So I became the singer at all the talent shows. I needed bell bottoms, stack heels, afro, the music coming at me. The older chicks were liking me, you know. But I didn't really realize that there was a kind of a, not a comedy side, but kind of a a brave rebel coming. Because when I was in the first grade... You know, we had to hold our hands up for the President uh, Pledge of Allegiance. And since my mom is so right on and it's about the black power and it's, it's my fr I'm in first grade, you know, I put up the black power fist. And got in a lot of trouble by the school. But when I got home, her and her friends were on the floor laughed. They had tears in their eyes and it confused me. Tell me your first time on stage doing comedy. Was at a strip club in Washington, D.C. The worst strip club you can ever imagine. It's in the worst neighborhood. The, the guards outside wear T-shirts that on the back reads, please don't shoot them. <laughs> friend of mine, Howard, who I grew up with, who was the poorest person I ever grew up with, he got an orange, three plastic army men in a paper bag for Christmas and he came to my house all happy and my mom said give him one of your watches and I was like what give him one of your watches I'm like why because your grandmother gave you one and we gave you one so give him one and I was pissed but I didn't understand what she was trying to show me well Howard years later thought I was talented man and I had finally got I'm 18 I got a job as an assistant chef at the Ramada Inn in Crystal City, Virginia. And I called him. I was all happy. I was like, Howard, I got a job. And Howard went, you about the stupidest motherfucker I ever met. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? He said, if I were you, I would be in Hollywood doing movies and everything. You've been funny as shit since we were little kids. You can sing. You can do everything. Finally convinced me three months later to finally go down to this club. Uh, I walked in. The manager said, is that him? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, all right, you got five minutes, you know? And I looked at Howard. And I was like, man, what in the fuck do you want me to do? And he said, I don't care what you do, nigga. Say something, anything that comes to mind. And I swear to you, the first thing that came out of my mouth, they died laughing. And I played at that club for three months straight. 
And it was a true story about my couch at home. It was a story. It wasn't even, I don't even, I'm not even a storytelling comic. You know that. But it's the first thing that came out of my mouth. I told him my mom used to make us clean up the kitchen like all day Saturday and all day Sunday because we had such a roach problem, right? And if we just did that, we'd have no more roaches. So we did that. But when me and my sister came home from school to watch Speed Racer, <laughs> we found out that the, roach, the roaches were eating our couch. They just moved. <laughs> and everybody just died laughing. So I stayed at that club. My, my rise is different. I stayed at that club for three months. Show promoters started noticing me. I started doing showcases, started meeting the Craig Frazier's. You know, uh, Martins and all those people that were Garvin's. I started meeting all those people, but I didn't play at club. I started doing concerts. You know, the promoters came to see me and said, there's, you know, acts in town. You got the kind of act that you sing and stuff so you can do those acts. I met Patti LaBelle, Luther Vandross, Evelyn Champagne King. Patti LaBelle took me on shows with her. Luther took me on tour with him way later. And that's how that thing started. I was I, I did the Apollo Theater in New York when it was a real show. Showtime at the Apollo? Yeah. I won everything. Amateur night. Right. I learned a, I learned a lesson in one of the showcases in D.C. A friend of mine told, there was a big one where there were singers and comics and I said, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing something cappella. And he said, don't do that, man. You're a unique comic. And I'm like, no, because my aspiration was still, I'm a singer. And I bombed didn't win the contest or nothing so I went with comedy and I came down, came up to the Apollo was down to the last person he won I lost but I met Sinclair Jones Sinclair Jones told me this is going to go fast Sinclair told me hey man I'm an attorney but you got everything there is is you have everything you need to become a Hollywood star if I take you to LA for a week pay for the plane tickets get us a place to say would you consider moving to LA and making me your manager and I'm like shit a trip to LA fine when I hit the ground couldn't get in the comedy store laugh factory none of those places I went over to the comedy act theater comedy act theater it was an urban comedy club the only one in Los Angeles at the time now this during the year I came out here was 87 the Lakers won were winning championships and the Raiders were actually won two Super Bowls. So if you go to this club, all the Raiders, all, all the Lakers, every hot chick you ever want to see, but most importantly, Robert Townsend, Keenan Ivory Wayans, Paul Mooney, I, I had met these guys. Eddie Murphy, you know I ain't met him. Eddie Murphy and a guy, really talented comedian named Robin Harris who hosted it. Every black comic that you know that who is anything now was there. It was the highest level that you can go. It started the whole black comedy movement, period. I walked in that club as a total rookie and everybody's there. Name them, Mark Curry. It's the place where you get discovered. And we jockeyed a couple of times trying to get in there. And they finally said, yes, you can do a set. And Keenan was there. Damon was there. And these are, you got to know, they didn't have movies yet. Damon was there. Keenan was there. 
um, Robert Townsend was there. Okay. And that's big. That's big because they were doing things. They were like the big shots. And I went on stage and I brought that motherfucking house down. They never seen anything like me because I sang and I did comedy. I did impressions. Like I was like the, everybody else knew karate and I knew Kung Fu, you know, and I didn't know any better. I was like really raw, you know, it was all talent. And so I became a regular at this club, which enabled me time in LA to start to go to the, the comedy store. And it built from there. But Robert Townsend remembered me, was kicking ass so good that he put me on something called Partners in Crime, which is the first sketch movement leading up to Dave Chappelle or In Living Color or any of that stuff. And him and Keenan Ivory Williams were partners. He put me on that show. It was my first TV. I'm, I'm the first, I think I'm, I, I know that I am the first African-American comedian that got all his breaks from African-American men. The two people that broke me was a guy named Chris Sarpis and a, an agent named Carrie Woods at William Morris. And they took a liking to me. And they thought I was, they, they knew I was going to be the next guy. And Kerry Woods only had a couple of clients. He had um, Winona Ryder. He had uh, Uma Thurman. He had Andrew Dice Clay, Matt Dillon, and um, Gilbert Goffrey. That's all he had. And he concentrated on me 100%. Okay, I did uh, Partners in Crime. Arsenio put me on his show. That was my stand-up debut on, on national TV. Who is this kid? I'm the worst sweater you ever want to see. There was always all these uh, deals brewing. You're the hot guy. Somebody wants to do holding deals with you and all of this stuff. Um, I was written into, I was written, written into um, Murphy Brown. Disney had a deal for me. And Eddie Murphy had a deal for a pilot where I played his little brother in Coming to America. Right? I picked that. It bombed. It was, uh, the writer was like from different strokes or something. You know, I never knew that that could make a difference in the show, but it can. That's over. And I'm saying I'm going back to the clubs because I'm not going through this anymore. Right? And I'm, I'm in the main room, kind of. The main room at the comedy store yeah. is where the big acts play. Right. Mitzi let me kill the belly room. She let me kill the OR. She the belly room was the smaller room that holds about 80 people. The original room, or it's called the OR, is the room that as you walk in the main entrance, it's a very dark room and holds about 150, maybe 200 people. In Vietnam, they call them grunts. And the main room holds 400 people. Right. And you'd see Roseanne Barr, Seinfeld, Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler, Jim Carrey. And Louis Anderson used to close all the shows after Jim Carrey. Kill. Uh, Sam Kinison was, you know. So I'm on the fringe of becoming this young, really young, really young, hot comedian. But the main room is still the thing, you know. And I, I, I left the whole TV development world. You know, and went back to the clubs. So I get a call from the comedy store. He goes, Mitzi says that you got the main room. You don't know what that means, bro. You got the main room. 
Friday and Saturday night, and you are with Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. Either you go on after Eddie and before Richard, or you go on before Richard and after Eddie for four <laughs> shows. And we were like, holy smokes. I was ready to go home. I was, I was catching three, three buses a day working at Sally's Deli, you know? So this is it because in the main room, when Eddie's there and Finest Henderson's there, who's an incredible talent, or Charlie Fleischer's there. There's some brilliant comics. Charlie Fleischer's the voice of Roger Rabbit and a very talented comedian. He's one of the most extreme, unique. And Finus Henderson was the first great-looking. Great-looking guy that did songs, but he was funny, too, and all the chicks show up that night. So the main room is hot, you know? So she put me on the hottest Friday night show, and I didn't blink an eye. I didn't blink an eye from, from, from going to the Laugh Factory, from going to the Ice House, from trying to get in the belly room, from trying to do gigs. I did a gig on a, on a diving board in an empty pool in the hood with one of those school stereo systems, you know, where the speakers are attached and didn't even get paid. So, you know, this main room is a big deal. I do that show that night and I'm at my peak. It's like I prepared for this the whole time. So we're in the back, me and Sinclair. You know, in the back, there's the big room with the piano. And then there's the little hovels where the lesser comics kind of hang out. Yes. There's these little dressing room cubicles. And then there's the main dressing room with this piano coffee table where comics used to do uh, coke off of it. Yeah. Chicks, you know, the doors closed. You're not allowed back there. Unbelievable women going back there. So we're standing in this little hovel. You know, after killing two days at the comedy store, I have to stand up to show you this because this is just how it looked. So we're sitting in the hovel trying to figure out what's next. Is Mitzi, you know, that was really cool. What are we going to do next, you know? And Richard comes from the room back here. Richard Pryor. Yeah, and I don't see him. So we're standing in the hovel, and he walks, and he goes, you're a funny motherfucker. <laughs> and he walked back into the room. <laughs> and me and Sinclair were like, yes! Oh my God! I met Richard. This, I called my mom. She was like, I told you you shouldn't leave. I told you you should stay. I told you you should stay. And um, from that point on was when, pretty, when stuff pretty much started happening because I, came, I became so hot in that room that it didn't matter if the studios were coming for me or anything. It just seems like things were going my way. Now, Keenan approached me from A Living Color, and by now, you know, him and Robert Townsend are becoming movie stars on another level because there hasn't been any black... You think about black comedies now, you go, okay. You know, the best you can do for black comedies was back... The films that we know was um, Mother Jugs and Speed, you know, or, <laughs> you know what I mean, or, 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 or Across 110th Street. But the famous story with Robert Townsend, he used all of his credit, credit cards, cards to make Hollywood Shuffle. Right. And his uh, one sheet and Spike Lee's one sheet for She's Gotta Have It were the only one sheets that I saw ever with young black people on it. So they started that whole movement. Uh, Hollywood Shuffle came out, which was huge for us, you know. 
and I had met Keenan at the I'm Gonna Get You Sucker premiere, which blew us away because you were never seeing anything like this. So Keenan comes to me for a living color. You know, there's a show coming up. Da, 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 da. Now you gotta understand, I'm back in stand up. When you say you're back at stand up, if you're when you're good, this is subjective. When you're good, you want to stay where you're best. It's a little bit awkward stepping out and people are going, ah, I might put you in the movie or we might do this or we might do that or whatever. Because of that rise, Mitzi took me, Chris Rock, Pauly Shore, Tamayo Otsuki. Famous Japanese comedian. Tamayo Otsuki. Headlined um, Angel Salazar. Took Mamie Ali. And put us in Vegas at her Vegas club and in La Jolla. And she called us the new faces of comedy. So we had kind of a platform, you know. So when Keenan came along and was going, I got a show for you. I'm going like, I don't think so. You know, I'm good. The power of no. The power of no. My dumb ass. So Michael Gruber, who is my agent... Michael Gruber was one of the only agents at that time and in history who would represent tremendous stand-up comedians who became actors, but he also represented huge movie stars like George Clooney as well. Built George Clooney from a, a sitcom bit actor that was getting old into a huge star, took Queen Latifah, made her a television star, made her a movie star, took Martin, took Martin, Made him a TV star and a movie star. Took Ice Cube. Made him, He just understood. You know what I mean? I didn't like him because he was doing all that for them and not me. But he tells me something. He goes, look, you can pass if you want to pass. Okay? Everybody's being asked to do this show. All your contemporaries, Jim Carrey, everybody who's funny. Go audition. And if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. You don't want to leave it on the table. You're talented. If you don't get it, you can live with that, right? One of my philosophies always is just to go in and give everything you have. And when you get the gig, then you can pass if you want to pass. Mm -hmm. So I say, okay. You know, this is at the countless auditions that didn't work out. You know, it's a hurting thing. I was up for a different world, which is the biggest thing you can have on NBC. Carsey Warner, Bill Cosby was down to the last guy, didn't get it. So I'm like, I'm done with this. So I go in to Tamara Rawit, who is the producer, and Keenan Ivory Wayans, and I sit down on the couch, and I had never done improv. I go in to the audition, and I'm not really familiar with sketch, but sketch is in me. Like, I don't have the, the skill, but I got the natural stuff for it. So I go into the office and sit down on the couch. They're sitting there facing me, and they go, okay, now you're a, now you're a, a Puerto Rican cab driver, and somebody set the seat on fire in the back seat huh you know now a, a fat lady's in the elevator with you and she just farted you know they set me up all these things and I was kind of like not really knowing what I was doing you know so I left there going I don't got this damn thing how am I gonna do this damn thing but there's a stand up audition at the laugh factory I can do this I go down there, there's 30 comedians, and everybody who you know was there. I showed up and read the names, and I was last. And that's last with Martin. Name them. Name all the black comics you know now. 
So, you know, comedy is a technique. Comedy is a, it's a skill, and you 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 assess the situation and determine what it is you need to do to be successful in that situation. The way I was going to be successful in that situation was to not watch anybody. Because people can be, um, I'll put this mildly, absorbent of your material. So you may see your show, all you've been doing for the last couple, you'll see remnants of it. So don't watch. So I went outside on um, Sunset Boulevard right there around the corner. And me and my coach, it was, it was like Ollie and that guy, you know, let's go, Jim. Angelo Dundee. Yes. yes. I, I walked and paced back and forth on that um, corner until they called my name. How many people were left in the crowd? It was packed because it was sexy. It was in living color audition, just like their dance. Uh, Keenan is a genius in creating energy and buzzes around his projects. Okay. Everybody's there. It was fair. Everybody did three minutes, you know? Some went over. You know how that goes. So I go on last. I've always been really creative. Now, someone ran outside and said, you know, God bless him. You know, Ricky Harris just did this that you do, that that you do, that that you do, and that that you do. And there were pretty good bits that I do, you know. And so I said, okay, you know, let me just, you know, take a couple of deep breaths, do what I do best, and see what happens. Because of watching Charlie Fleischer, okay, and watching Carlin, you know, watching the guys that can kind of make things happen. John Campanera. You know, there's another one. Um, Jackson Purdue. Watching Jim Carrey. You know, watching them on their feet. Another one was Steve Odekirk. Watching him. Watching Roseanne go from the hip. Go from the hip. Once she got rolling, you can hang it up. She can go from the hip. Or Ronaldo Ray. Or any of these guys that were really... Paul Mooney. Paul Mooney used to write for Richard Pryor. Watching these guys on any given... Dom Herrera. Watching them. All the years that I was going down the comedy store. You know, I started working on that muscle. That muscle to, 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 to spin gold out of straw. And I just went up there with an open mind and said, you know what's going on in this world. You know what's happening. Try to see if you can come up with something that's going to be now that you can do. So I got up there, Barry, and I did my stuff, my killers. I could do Spanish, you know, I do singers, this, that, and the other thing. But RoboCop was out at the time. And Mike Tyson was really huge with Robin Givens at the time. So my last bit, Barry was Robin Givens as RoboCop <laughs> against Mike Tyson. And I can't tell you how the bit went, but I got a standing ovation. And Keenan came to me that night and said, you got the show. I didn't even know what the show was. 
We waited six months after we did the pilot. It's supposed to show you what we get in this town. In the pilot, I had very small parts. Okay, in the filming of the damn thing. And then I had a, did a really big Sammy number, a Sammy Davis Jr. number, which would have put me as, as one of the key guys, but they pulled it because Sammy was sick. I did Sammy as Mandela, big Broadway thing with Sammy as Mandela, man. It was it was brilliant in total Sammy, you know. And he's, he's a, you know, Sammy is, Sammy's on Broadway. Sammy as Mandela, you know. Whether I'm white, whether I'm wrong, no cat's gonna stop this ebony star from singing my song. <laughs> I gotta be free. Or, or, or um, Mr. Steve Biko, Mr. Steve Biko, march, you know. Um, um, uh, who can take apartheid? Turn it inside out. Show these Africanas what this freedom gig's about. <laughs> the Mandy Man can. <laughs> the Mandy Man can, but they threw me in the can and threw the key away. Sammy's brilliant, all this stuff. It didn't make it to the pilot. So during the shooting of the pilot, we shoot, uh, we shoot sketches in front of live audiences and none of mine were there. So Keenan goes, why don't you warm up the audience, you know? I warmed up for everything in the world to make a living. $30 a gig, $25 to, to warm up, you know, the price is right, you know? And that night, while I'm doing it, I cut my, my shin on a light. So my, 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 my shin is bleeding. I'm not feeling like I'm on this show. You know, like what the hell happened? I wait. All of us wait for six months to even get the show picked up. You know, Barry Dillard got smart because Keenan leaked the tape to other networks when they said no. And then they, him and Lucy Salhini looked like geniuses. And the star was born. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. It's happening currently. Biggest disappointment was, you know, once I went through what I went through and started building back my career, that's going to be hard anyway, you know, that's going to be hard. But I think the single most difficult thing is, is that I have a hard time having the people that can, that can, having the people that can, that have the green light capacity to actually put you into projects that are really, really good, just simply not do it. Just simply not do it. But what it's done for me is it made me pretty much like everybody else, you know? It made me like everybody else, you know? We're not waiting around for, it taught me. Because I, when I came in here, I was a golden child. You saw me, I shot like a comet. You know, I didn't really have to work that hard because I was such a natural. Then I had such good people around me. And now it's time to build that character. So what happened for me is there's a new consciousness. And that new consciousness is, you know what? I do the best I can every day. I know that not only am I a great talent, but I'm a really good person. And I got both of those on a daily basis. And as long as I accept what comes along, things get better. 
What advice do you have for the young person who is in this entertainment business who has started with so much adversity wherever they are in the world mm -hmm. to fight through everything you fought through personally, professionally, a comedian, any kind of artist, especially those out there who have dalliances with alcohol, with mm -hmm. substance abuse, and how they can fight through and take their career to the next mm -hmm. level like you have? I think pretty much we're all lucky because we, if we don't have immediate family, we do have either friends and even strangers that care about us, care about what we want to do, care. And if you tell them, they start to, to take on your stuff. They start to admire you for what you want to do. I think that if you find a way... <laughs> To only listen to them. If you find a way to really open your mind and only listen to them. I think that'll be the first key. Because usually what they have to say. Is better for you than what you think. There's all these, um, you know, sayings, you know, never take no for an answer. You know, you pull yourself up by the brute strap and you do that stuff. Da, 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 da. You can even do that sometime and it's not happening. But the people that are around you that care about what you're doing, they're 98.7% of the time are going to tell you what's good for you. And what's good for you personally and internally will always move you in the direction of what you want. Tommy Davidson, you are the man. This has been an incredible interview. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I did. Thank you so much. And man, hello again. Hello again. Certainly not for the last time. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. 
And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I've partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.